You're listening to Resurrection Life Podcast with your host, Father Steve Matson and Richard Budd, the podcast of the Church of the Resurrection in Lansing, Michigan. In today's episode, we talk about what now after Prop 3. We hear a reflection on scruples, and we hear a poem by Henry Vaughn, Peace, read by Dan Dowsett. Welcome to Resurrection Life Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Resurrection Life Podcast. This is your host, Richard Budd, and with me as always. As always, Father Steve. Father Steve, good to have you. You know, last time we were talking, we were mentioning how warm the fall had been. Mm -hmm. And then it seemed like one day the switch got flipped and it went 70 on one day, 30 on the next. Well, and and we are recording this on a... Snow day here in, in with quotation <laughs> marks. It it was a gift to uh, the, the the local high school and at least resurrection. I don't know if anybody else had a snow day or not, but in any case, I love snow days. People, if they ever watch me at a mass and I'm 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 praying with the kids for the snow day, I just love the the wonder of it. Well, this morning at mass, I, I said, you know, wouldn't it be horrible if we could get to the place where we would be able to manage everything and there'd be no kind of surprises like this. Mm-hmm. No wonder, no surprise. And and probably you're going to have school tomorrow and then waking up, it's like Christmas. Oh, yeah, the joy of the, the joy of, spontaneous gift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. Mm-hmm. That sense of wonder and enchantment. And I, I do think that this is the problem, and not to get ahead of ourselves in, in the conversation today, but the technocracy that wants to take yeah. all of the uncertainties away. no. The uncertainties get us to be dependent upon God. Yeah, in fact, when 2020 came and there was all this online schooling, one of my legit worries was there would never be any snow days ever again because you could just move to online schooling. And I will will tell you this. There are people in northern reaches or in our own history who would say, we never had a snow day, (laughs) as if... uh, so this is, we're going to tough it out. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, toughing it out, what's the upside of that? Well, now, there are times to tough it out, places but not with regard it. to snow days. Well, and that's the thing, like, life should have spontaneous gifts. Yeah. You weren't expecting it's, them. This is grace. Yeah. Unmerited favor. Yeah. yeah. And so I think things like snow days remind us they that do. we're being taken care of. And, and the fact is, I, you know, I really... Hope. I don't know what it will, I don't know what heaven will be like, but if there is a new heavens and a new, I hope there's snow in heaven. Hmm. Now, you can't get frostbite in heaven. Yeah. We know that, okay? <laughs> and, and, you know. My anyway. three year old was just talking about getting outside all morning long. And then he went outside, and about 2.5 minutes later, he was back at the door crying because he's cold. <laughs> it's cold. Uh, I, I had uh, the catechesis of the Good Shepherd kids came and uh, they were uh, and, and your two sons were there and, and uh, they were very engaged mm. so they have uh, they've learned their lessons well about purple for preparation and I always talk to the kids as if they're adults mm-hmm. right? no I, I mean kind of playfully and I said um, uh, 
I don't know what the question was. Can, I, can anyone say why? And little Margaret Kerr said, why? <laughs> I can say why. I can say it. I can say it. <laughs> I've been working on that one. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we're, I really do feel, even though we've, we've, we're blanketed with snow today and we're, we're, we've got Proposal 3 in the, in the rearview mirror and we'll talk a little bit about that, I, I feel such joy and such anticipation of what God is going to do mm-hmm. in and through us and through the church uh, in a world that needs us and Jesus more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's turn to that then. So the last time we talked... We didn't know. We didn't know. We were just a few days out. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're about a week and a half later. Um, proposal three has passed. Um, do you want to? And, and you know, you, the entire, all five of those, I, I preached about it uh, this past weekend, and all five of those ballots that had to do with abortion, and even Montana, which said if, if a baby is born, whether through abortion or any other means, uh, and they're born alive, they need to be given medical care. And it went to down to defeat, I think, 52.7% voted against it, and then the balance for it. And that was shocking in, as we, we might say, red Montana. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I, I preached about uh, Aaron Wren's reflections in First Things in February, talking about those three worlds, uh, you know, the, the, he, he talks about the stages of um, secularization and positive world, which he says is between pre-1994, basically society has a positive stance towards Christianity, then the neutral stance, 1994 to 2014. What was 1994? That was when, I think that was, wasn't that moral majority kind of... uh, Okay. I, I don't know for sure. He doesn't, he doesn't specify it. But the 2015, right, so through 2014, 2015 was Obergefell. Yeah. And then uh, uh, that, that was neutral world. Uh, so neither positive nor negative. But then after Obergefell, uh, to be Christian and to be distinctively Christian, to hold on to the truths of faith is negative world. And I think what we saw writ large in this election was we're in a post-Christian culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a relief to see it. It doesn't yeah. mean we, we, we throw in the towel, but what are we called to do now? It's not we're going to win this culture back no. uh, on the big scale. Yeah. Well, that was a, a reflection I had, was that we overturned Roe v. Wade without a pro-life culture. That's right. And so there was going to be a big backlash. And I think it also points to the effect that laws have on the formation of a culture. I know so many people who voted yes on Proposal 3 because they couldn't stomach not doing anything. As, as in, abortion is this this absolute necessity. Now, before 1973 with Roe, nobody thought abortion was an absolute necessity. But having that law for almost 50 years... That's the the psyche, the culture gets formed in that way. To, so now it's a, a necessity. So this is why it's so important to to form law in the right direction. Um, but the other thing is, I've also noticed, like as you said, like positive, neutral, 
negative. Um, there's, there's this been growing attitude of if you speak or act with religious convictions, you are a threat to the culture. Yeah. Just uh, like Christ was obnoxious to the culture, we have become obnoxious to yeah. the culture. Uh, I've had um, I've had people in, in public forums such as like Twitter and whatnot call me a Christian nationalist uh, just right. because I've I've talked about moral good. And uh, I mean, Christian nationalism is a thing, but it's not as big a thing as, as it might seem right now. Uh, just to have religious opinions and, and think that our culture should follow a moral path does not really? make you a nationalist. And I, you're absolutely right. And I think that's the danger that we have, and not that we want to just talk about politics today, but the bipartisan uh, vote in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, mm -hmm. which enshrines same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's basically a protection against the possibility that what um, Justice uh, was Thomas. Thomas said that could be revisited sure. um, in light of the lessons of Dobbs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what does that mean about religious freedoms? What does it mean about any kind of federal dollars that might be given? What about 501c3 status? So all of that is the, the contextual surround, and you are absolutely right, we did not have uh, a change of hearts uh, so we weren't ready for Roe. Roe was poorly decided, and this court, uh, the, the last court, decided rightly that it should be struck down because it was had no basis in law, but we had grown accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we weren't going to go the middle way of Europe, which is basically abortion is legal till about 15 weeks. No, it, it has to be until the moment of birth, yeah. which is... We are going to face judgment yeah. from the Lord for this. It is evil that we have trumpeted, maybe in just the slight majority as a nation. But the, the Lord cannot allow us to hold these views for, forever and not be judged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think we're, we're heading towards some trouble troubling times, some difficult times. And I, I don't say that as to be a fear monger. I, I say that to be prepared. That's right. Um, Jenny Ingalls, who is our director of natural family planning and pro-life ministries at the diocese and myself, sat down this, this past week for a three-hour meeting. And we just said, okay, we've got to start preparing for what's coming next. Um, you know, things like euthanasia, um, conscious protections for our Catholic doctors and nurses right. and things like this. We have to be ready. Um, but what I think we all need to start thinking about, things that we've already started to do here at um, the parish, is that isolated individuals are going to be eaten alive if we try to live our faith as isolated individuals. Well, and, and, and I, I see that as uh, the individual, but I think especially uh, the gift that we can give to each other as families mm -hmm. who have a common worldview, uh, which is thoroughly and unapologetically Catholic. 
authentically Catholic. We're not trying to have the church change to fit the times. We want our lives to be the sign of contradiction yeah, that Jesus was. Yeah, be a city was. on a hill. Exactly. A lamp, uh, lamp Which I believe, absolutely, and I'm so grateful that the diocese is talking about this as well. How do we stand as uh, a defenders of the true downtrodden, the least of these, mm-hmm. and ministers to them? Uh, you know, walking with mothers in need. What, what's the, Walking with moms in need. Yeah. Walking with moms in need. We need to do that more. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about it. That we're, we don't care about the baby only until birth, right? We care about, and you know, one of the things that, that animated me with regard to the proposal three was concerns about what's going to happen in our schools, our public schools, mm-hmm. with regard to uh, the aggressive, uh, they don't like the term, but the grooming uh, of kids vis-a-vis gender uh, transition, yeah. right? Gender ideology. And say your, your pronouns. And uh, it, we need to do something like the Benedict Option, mm-hmm. which, just to be very clear, does not mean going off into the hills, but it means having intentional relationships where we're not alone and we've got small groups that support each other. Yeah, we need to be distinctive uh, in our Catholicity and not accidentally Catholic, like where we just kind of are going with the flow of of the culture around us. Um, we're going to have to be as boulders in a stream. Um, and so that doesn't mean you get taken out of the stream, uh, but it does mean that you are, are going to have to find ways to be strong in your convictions because um, there's going to be a lot of pressure. Well, and, and I, I think... I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that is sobering is to see the effects of the culture on the youth vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it was radically higher, but there were a lot of same-day registrations uh, among uh, college students um, for the election. And I think many of them have imbibed the cultural values. Yeah, I think uh, the... Um I think the youth vote uh, 25 and under, or maybe maybe a little higher than that, maybe it was 30 and under, uh, voted for uh, Proposal 3, 80%. Right. And so we don't rail against that. No, we just it just, need it's to, a wake-up call. Right. No, we, we, need to, we need to instill in, and I, I, I want to talk to parents and say, what are the ways that the culture is getting to your kids in, you know, what are, what is happening when their online behavior is not being monitored? And hopefully you are monitoring it, mm-hmm. mom and dad. Because the fact is, evil is very strategic. Mm-hmm. The evil one and the demons are very strategic. And we are curious, fascinated to see some of those, those TikTok videos of, of three and four-year-olds who are just gawking at the, uh, you know, drag queens, mm. you know, flaunting their absurd form. But kids are curious. So we need to protect their innocence and their curiosity. Yeah, this is one area that we're going to begin really digging deep into um, at the beginning of the year uh, at the diocese is uh, uh, online safety. Um I can I can give one recommendation at this point. There's a website called Protect Young Eyes, and it's really geared towards helping parents understand 
um, the just the internet world because it changes so fast. Like what apps are young people using? And so they'll they'll rate all the new apps as they come out, and they'll tell you almost like a like a movie rating, like this. Who's the who's behind it? It's connected with Covenant Eyes. I don't okay. think it's I don't think it's a one like they're okay. they're owned by them. But I think that they're a lot of the same people go back and forth. Um, but they also have recommendations for like hardware, like what router should you use in your home that helps filter out things. Um, so. Uh, I just would recommend people take a look at Protect Young Eyes as a resource, especially if your preteen or your teen wants to use an app on their phone. You can say, all right, let me check and see. And you can do the review and go and check out whether or not that's a um, that's an okay app for them to use. Because um, I know, you know, when some of my, uh, my siblings, well, they've got older kids than I do, and their kids want to get on, you know, Snapchat and all this kind of stuff because that's where all their friends are. Right. Um, but my brother's able to check out, you know, the different apps that because they're developing a new one every week. It seems like. Yeah, we were. Uh, I, I just gave the last talk um, on Resurrection Life Course, and we were we we're talking just about. So what do we do? We've, we've had a deep encounter with the Lord, and we've opened ourselves to the Holy Spirit. How do we live this life? And one of the things we need to do is. If we've got influences in our life, we've got friends who don't help us become the saint we will have wanted to become at the end of our lives, right? All of us will want to have become saints. Uh, and if we don't, then and we're in a state of grace, we'll be purified to become saints. But uh, friends can help us to that destination or they can hinder mm-hmm. us to that destination. Uh, destination. And the virtual friends that your kids and you yourselves have are helping you to one of two destinations, heaven or hell, right? Yeah. There's there's no third option. Yeah. We are either destined for heaven or hell. And I mean, I think all of us have dealt with, I myself dealt with before I got my dumb phone, flip phone, embarrassing, humiliating, right? I'm proud of my dumb phone. Uh, no, I, I would, I was a slave to it in a way that I'm not a slave. How could you be a slave to a, a, a dumb bone? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm not saying you can't use it responsibly, but be very careful because it's affecting. How many times have your kids come up to you? I'm not going to ask you right now, but how many times have your kids come up to you and you're doing something on your phone and they are the annoyance? Oh, yeah. For the sure. distraction, the yeah. annoyance. And I'm not saying that you have to be available anytime they might come up because you might be engaged in some serious. But if it's checking Twitter, I'm sorry. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a mistake you will regret mm-hmm. when the end comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, um, really, you know, just to kind of recall a little bit about um, November 9th. So I had gone to bed and was awoken by my one-year-old son mm. who was not sleeping. So I had to go and hold him to kind of help him put, go back to sleep. And so I thought, oh, I'll check to see how the election's going. Well, that was a bad idea <laughs> because they had already, it was like 10 minutes earlier, they had called it. Well, then I, could, I was so upset. I couldn't yeah. fall asleep. 
And I was like begging God, Lord, please let me fall asleep because I need to be able to function tomorrow. Um, and so eventually the Lord graced me with, um, uh, with sleep. When I got up the next morning, um, I just, I sat down for some prayer and I just, my prayer was, how am I going to explain this to my children? That's right. Because while we didn't give them every detail, they're very young. We told them a, a bit about what, what was going yeah. on. Um, and I, the reason why I'm telling you all this is because this is the kind of the mindset that I'm going forward with. Uh, the first is that, um, the Lord just guided me to, th- to, to, to tell my children that while there were evil people in the world and there are evil people that wrote these laws, not everybody that voted for it is evil. That many people are confused and misguided by evil in the world. And so we can't look at everybody who voted yes as an enemy. We still, the call is still to love. And so we have to go out and meet the world with love, even if the world does not meet us back with love. But the second thing is, and I think this is the, the, the most important thing that I took away from that prayer, is that God never allows an evil to happen unless he can bring a greater good out of it. You know, where, where evil abounds, grace abounds all the more. Absolutely. So when my children woke up and they said, Dad, how could people do that? I said, guys, we should actually be excited this morning because since this is so bad, God has a much greater plan in mind. And we should be excited to see what the Lord is going to do with us. So I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about it. I'm grieving. No, no, this, this, this is what you are talking about right now is the Christian understanding yeah. of suffering. Mm-hmm. Like we should have yeah. th- the theological. And, and like I, I, when I got to work, somebody was like, how can you be joyful about this? And I said, this is not the result of me having some sort of intellectual insight or what. This is a theological gift of hope. Yeah, we can grieve and be filled with hope Mm -hmm. and even have joy in the anticipation, the wonder. How is it, Lord, that you're going to accomplish a greater good out of this? And this is a gift. It's a theological virtue, so it's not something we can muscle ourselves into. It's a gift that we need to ask the Lord for. Give me the gift of hope so that I can anticipate the good that you are going to do. And I think in our last podcast, if I recall correctly... We talked about the fact that, and my when I talked to the uh, the German public radio person, I said, if we win, which is Proposal Three mm. was defeated, uh, I think the hostility, even violence, would have closed off hearts to potential conversion. Mm-hmm. So the possibility of conversion of hearts now, we are powerless now. Mm-hmm. We don't have the upper hand, and that's a great place for a Christian to be. Yeah. We don't like it. We would rather play power politics, but the Lord's kingdom is not of this world. Mm -hmm. It is eternal. And I do think for us to live in such a way that we become that sign of contradiction, that joy-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled, love-filled community, that to be immersed in it is to be invited to change. Yeah. I think we converted. all should open up Matthew 5, read the Beatitudes, and use that as an a, a examination of conscience. Am I poor in spirit? Am I meek? Am I a peacemaker? I mean, those are the ones that convict me, you know? And 
out of that, start making the decisions about how we're going to live our life. Well, and I'll just, I'll just say, I think that's absolutely right. And to be courageous, to speak the truth mm-hmm. plainly, yeah. to speak the common sense that we understand, even if they spit upon us. Yeah, that's the end of the Beatitudes. Right, right. Blessed are you if they persecute you. That's a good point, good point. And for us to just be Christians in this time, that's our call. Mm-hmm. And what is the answer for this time? It is the saints yeah. who are being raised up, even in our community, to be the sign of contradiction. Sure. Yeah, I was just telling somebody um, earlier this week, I can't remember who, but I said, think about you know, as as evidence of like where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The horrors of the 20th century, but yet some of the saints that we got out of the 20th... I mean, we're talking of the 2,000-year right. history of the church. Some of the greatest saints in that 2,000 history were in the 20th century. Mother Teresa, Padre Pio, Maximilian Kolbe, John Paul II. I mean, the Lord provides in the moment we may not see it. Right. Because the, the those people, when they were alive, their friends may have known that they were good leaders or, or had a certain relationship with the Lord. But it wasn't until after their death that we really kind of That's right. fully understood their, their importance, you know? So the Lord is, as you said, raising up saints, even within our own community. And for us to, to create to the extent that we can within our parish community uh, and in our community on the east side of Lansing, uh, a place where those saints can... Uh, have fertile soil to get to know each other and to help each other become more and more the, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl they, they were created to be. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the game plan now. That's right. You know? Yeah, so the light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not comprehended it or overcome it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are wanting more and more to be salt, light, and leaven in our community. Yeah. Uh, and the call is clearer now after November 8th. Yeah. So build community, build holy community, have people over, pray the rosary with them, you know, That's right. uh, you know, uh, don't just have dinner and good and good drink, and, have and, that, yeah, but absolutely. then, but then maybe pray a decade of the rosary together, you know, two families together to come to pray or, or, or you know, just things and like I, that. And I think for us to, to collectively discern what are the distractions, what are the rivals to God in our lives and oh, how yeah. do we, how do we root them out? Mm-hmm. Individually and in, in community. More and more I'm convinced because I've seen what the Lord has done with me in my life um, with this practice. Every single one of us needs silent time with God every day. That's right. We have to make that a priority. I thought I was doing okay until I started that practice and then the, I've seen what the Lord has done with it. And I'm not like talking a full holy hour. I'm That's talking right. minutes of time that I'm able to set aside for the Lord as a, a first fruit of my day. And the Lord has really done a lot with it. So we and give I, I, th- I think, I think your, your point is well taken to, to I, I would say shoot for 10 minutes, all right? And yeah. then if you can go beyond that. And obviously you're at a very different state of light than I am with mm-hmm. young kids. And for you to, to love your wife, Maureen, enough to give her that time sure. and vice versa. Um, and maybe, I think, uh, Opus Day, I think they recommend a half hour for laymen and women. And that would be an ideal for, especially if you're single or if you're retired or you have kids out of the, out of the home, uh, to, to take that kind of time uh, is a vital and to listen to the Lord. Yeah, 
Right. The, God has so many things he wants to say to us. And he wants to show us the areas in which we've got to grow personally. And the great thing about God is that when he points out an area of sin or the area of, of growth that needs to happen, it's never condemning. It's like, uh, it's life, it's a life giving. Well, it's an invitation. You know, it's an yeah. invitation uh, into a deeper discipleship and mm-hmm. deeper walk with him. Yeah. So that, that's going to be a necessity to build Catholic culture. We all need to be making sure we spend time Absolutely. with the master. So, all right. Well, I think that's good for today. Uh, people will be listening to this during Advent. So that's, that's also right. a good yeah, thing. to. We will have already handed out the book by J.W. Richards, Eat Fast Feast. Oh, okay. uh, so we're going to give that, that you perhaps already have it. It's a Christian discipline. Uh, you talked about, uh, uh, you know, walking with the poor and, and serving those in need, almsgiving and fasting, prayer. Those are the things that help us become saints. Mm-hmm. All right. So until next time, this is Rich. This is Father Steve. God bless. We all know that life is a spiritual battle and our enemy's main weapons are lies. In the following reflection from Sean O'Neill, we discover the nature of the specific form of lies called scruples and how they can stop us moving forward in the life of the Spirit. Scruples. In the world we live in, it has become increasingly common for people to have a very loose concept of morality. What used to be termed the permissive society has now become, to a large extent, normal life. It has been said that 25% of the population are honest, 25% are dishonest, and 50% would be dishonest if only someone would give them the chance. Similarly, there are scenes on TV now that not long ago would have had someone arrested on obscenity charges. And then there's the looming presence of internet pornography to deal with. Many people now gloss over sin as though it were nothing, pleading mitigating circumstances and reduced culpability. But for someone who's serious about the Christian life, there's the possibility that they may have the opposite problem, scruples. One definition of scruples runs as follows. An unfounded fear that something is a sin, which, as a matter of fact, is not. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself whether you've committed a mortal sin or not? Just for the record, mortal sin can be described as a gravely sinful act which can lead to damnation if a person does not repent of the sin in confession before death. However, for a sin to be mortal, three conditions have to be in place. First of all, the sin has to be what's called grave matter. That is, something that is serious in itself, such as murder, adultery, abortion, rape, occult activity, lying under oath, hatred, atheism, heresy, pornography, and so on. Second, the sin has to be committed with the full knowledge that it is a sin. And third, it has to be committed voluntarily. All of these conditions have to be met before a sin can be considered mortal. 
So, for example, if you commit a sin knowingly and willingly, but it's not grave matter, then it's not a mortal sin. If a sin does constitute grave matter and you know it's a sin, but you're coerced into it, or you're not in your right mind at the time, then it's not a mortal sin. Nevertheless, if you suffer from scruples, none of this matters because you're going to believe you're in serious sin anyway. The typical train of thought of someone suffering from scruples is to believe that even if you've confessed your sin in confession, somehow the absolution didn't take. The scrupulous person might well trek round priest after priest to seek absolution for the same sin time after time. There's a certain pride that can creep in where you don't believe the priest when he says that your sins are forgiven. Instead, you cling to your own opinion that God can't possibly forgive you. St. Alphonsus Liguori urged priests to be kind to those suffering from the affliction of scruples, but he advised them to also be stern with people who stubbornly stuck to their own counsel, even telling them to ban the person from going to other confessors. But there's another aspect to scruples that can be just as troublesome and that is when you think you have committed a sin when you actually haven't. This can happen when we're presented with a temptation. For example, say we're at the mall and we see a mom and a dad with their young children and one of them is throwing a tantrum. Hopefully it's one of the kids. A temptation arises in us to judge that couple. Shouldn't they control that child? Why don't they discipline them? How inconsiderate of them not to be able to cut short that bad behaviour. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. These may be some of the thoughts that go through our minds. It's worth remembering the words of St Bernard of Clairvaux who says, Refrain from curiosity about other people's conduct and shun rash judgment. Even if you should see your neighbour doing what is wrong, refuse to pass judgment on him, excuse him instead. Excuse his intention even if you cannot excuse the act, which may be the fruit of ignorance or surprise or chance. But when we are presented with thoughts such as these, at that point we have a choice whether to go with those thoughts and give in to them or to reject them. If we give in to them, then we have committed a sin, and if we resist those thoughts, then we are in the clear. Nevertheless, the problem for the person with scruples is that they think the temptation itself is a sin. It's called having a scrupulous conscience. This is different from having what's called a delicate conscience. A delicate conscience is often found in someone who is trying to disentangle themselves from a life that takes them away from God, and they're trying to get free of persistent serious sin in their life. That person might well try to avoid all sorts of situations, pastimes or people that they know will lead them into sin, and there's nothing wrong with that. Oftentimes we end up with scruples because we have a warped idea of what God is. We think he's the sort of God who's waiting to catch us out and punish us for every little thing that we do wrong. If you remember the account of the tempting of Eve in the Garden of Eden, the devil did exactly this. He tried to misrepresent the nature of God. He tried to persuade Eve, 
successfully as it turned out, that God was holding out on her and Adam, that he was lying to them. Jesus, on the other hand, comes to persuade us that God the Father is loving and forgiving, accepting and kind. If we suffer from scruples, we might well think that it's somehow virtuous to condemn ourselves for imagined wrongs or to refuse forgiveness from the priest in confession because we are such abject sinners. But scruples can be a serious spiritual problem that stops us from entering into the life in abundance that God has promised us. It can paralyze us and stop us from being open to receive God's love. It can stifle the action of the Holy Spirit in us. Scruples are not virtue. They are a subtle attack of our enemy, the devil, that is designed to immobilize us and stop us from progressing in the spiritual life towards holiness. Lastly, one of the characteristics of scruples is that they are exhausting. It's very draining wrestling with ourselves, trying to avoid even temptations, constantly thinking about sins we might have committed, and living under the shadow of self-condemnation. And ultimately, of course, it's futile. Temptations will come and go, and there's not much we can do to stop them other than avoiding obvious occasions of sin. What really matters is what we do when we are tempted. And if we do sin, we have the beauty of the sacrament of reconciliation to put us back on track with a clear conscience. Let's allow the goodness, the kindness and the love of God into our lives. Let's give up our own assessment of ourselves as beyond the pale, condemned before we even start. And let's instead step into the dignity and the joy of our true identity as beloved sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came to give us the good news that we are loved and that we are set free from our sins. Help us to live out our status as precious children of the Father. We offer ourselves to you. If we have been scrupulous and proud and given in to the lies of the enemy in the past, we repent and ask you to heal us. Remove the curse of self-condemnation from us and let us live in the glorious freedom that you gained for us through your death and resurrection. Amen. We finish this episode with a poem by Henry Vaughan. Peace, read by Dan Dowsett. Henry Vaughan. Henry Vaughan was a 17th century Welch metaphysical poet, author, translator, and physician writing in English. He has been among the writers benefiting most from the 20th century revival of interest in poetry of John Donne and his followers. Recent attention to Vaughan's poetic achievements is a new phenomenon. Even though he published many translations and four volumes of poetry during his lifetime, Vaughan seems to have attracted only a limited readership. Except for his years of study in Oxford and London, he spent his entire adult life in Brecknockshire in Wales, 
on the estate where he was born and which he inherited from his parents. Vaughn suffered a prolonged sickness that inflicted much pain, and he interprets this experience to an encounter with death that alerted him to his misspent youth. Vaughn believed that he had been spared to make amends and start a new course, not only in his life, but in the literature he would produce. It was during this period of conversion in Vaughn's life, around 1650, that he adopted the saying, Moriendo Revixi, by dying I gain new life. Vaughn attempted, through his poetry, to orient his readers to the life of true religion, and he was heavily influenced by the work of the major metaphysical poet, George Herbert, particularly his book of poems, The Temple. The following poem, entitled Peace, was first published in his 1650 collection, Celix Centillions, The Flaming Flint. The poem is addressed to the soul and attempts to encourage it to leave behind all other ways of seeking peace in this world, because the true source of ultimate peace is heaven. It is the relationship with the one who made us, saved us, and can heal us that gives us real peace. Peace by Henry Vaughn My soul, there is a country far beyond the stars, where stands a winged sentry, all skillful in the wars. There, above the noise and danger, sweet peace sits crowned with smiles, and one born in a manger commands the beauteous files. He is thy gracious friend, and, O oh, my soul awake, did in pure love descend to die here for thy sake. If thou canst get but thither, thou grows the flower of peace, the rose that cannot wither thy fortress and thy ease. Leave then thy foolish ranges, for none can thee secure, but one who never changes, thy God, thy life, thy cure. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Resurrection Life Podcast. Please tune in next time for more conversation, reflections, and Catholic culture. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to drop us a line to give us feedback or suggest future topics to feature, write us at podcast at corelansing.org. You can find the Church of the Resurrection online at corelansing.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.